0: Hello and welcome from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This podcast you're about to hear was recorded at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what God has to say to you. Well, good morning, everyone. And as Nick said, welcome. Welcome to week one of our brand new series, Walking with God. We're really looking forward to unpacking the life of Moses together as a church, and it's worth noting that the whole church is going on this journey together. As Nick said, our kids are learning all about Moses in MPK, our youth are doing the same down in Keystone, so mums and dads, this is a great opportunity for you guys to learn and grow together, to talk about it with your kids To unpack this stuff together, it's just a wonderful opportunity to engage with the Bible as a family. And so I really want to encourage you to make the most of this opportunity. It's not that often where actually our whole church is learning and growing together, digging into the same topic, and yet that's what we're doing right now. So I want to encourage you, make the most of it. It's a wonderful thing we might be able to hear from our kids. What is it that you're learning allow the Lord to speak through each other. It's just a great thing, a wonderful thing for families to engage at that spiritual level together, and so I want to encourage you to take up the mantle and to make the most of it. As always, we want to acknowledge those who are joining us online as well. We're incredibly excited to see things returning to normal. Restrictions are being lifted, we're back, and it's, it's a wonderful thing, but we do want to acknowledge you guys joining us online And just before I get, our May book of the month is called Moses by Chuck Swindell. And I was supposed to bring a copy up here and then lift it up and show you, but I didn't. Because I have a terrible memory. So just imagine that there is a book here called Moses by Chuck Swindell. I know we have some Chucky fans in the house. So it's a fantastic read. We've got some extra copies available from Seeds Bookshop. So if you want to go deeper on this. If you want some background information, he actually does a really fantastic job with this, then I encourage you to go to seats and pick up a copy, Moses by Chuck Swindell. Well, this morning we want to begin our series by laying the foundation for you guys. You know, the very first word in Exodus chapter 1 is and. That's a little bit strange. It's not exactly the greatest English. It's not actually even reflected in the NIV, but if you read the Hebrew, it literally says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. And we've got to understand that that's not an accident, that that is there on purpose, because Moses wants us to know that Exodus is just one part of a bigger story that begins with creation and ends with the people of God standing on the edge of the promised land. And we're not meant to read Exodus in isolation. We're supposed to connect it to the wider story, which is the Pentateuch. And so if we look at the little bit of the story and how we got to where we are we would say well, look if we look at genesis we know it's all about creation That's very obvious right genesis is all about creation and yet the odd thing is that genesis actually finishes with death the death of joseph now, that's sin that's the impact that it has on our world but it's not the end of the story and so as we pick it up in exodus We see the beginnings of God's redemptive plan. The word exodus means the road out or deliverance. And that's what this book is all about. That sin twisted God's good creation. And yet here we see our first glimpse of God's redemptive plan. And despite our unfaithfulness, the truth is that our God is absolutely faithful we see that in our passage that we're looking at this morning it's a massive theme. we live in a world full of broken promises whether that's politicians the people around us or even just the promises that we make to ourselves every one of us has experienced the disappointment of a broken promise I think there's a whole bunch of us here this morning that have come with a long list of New Year's resolutions that are never, ever happening. Let's just be honest about that. I was going to go to the gym every day this year. And as you can see, that hasn't quite (laughs) eventuated. There's still time, and I can turn this around, I promise you. But I don't think I'm alone in those long lists of New Year's resolutions that are probably never happening, if we're honest. That we're kind of familiar with disappointment, familiar with broken promises, and sometimes we're our own worst enemies, if we're honest. But it also has a tendency to make us skeptical. And sometimes we can apply that same philosophy, that same experience to the character and nature of God. And yet, what we see in Scripture is that actually the character of God stands in stark contrast to all of that, because He is absolutely faithful. He never goes back on his word, never fails to deliver on a promise. And when you understand everything that God has promised us, the promises that he gave to Abraham, to the people of God, which includes us, you would know that's powerful. It's not an insignificant thing. It's something that you can build your life on, the unshakable promises of God. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Before we go any further, let's read our passage together. It's going to be up on the screen for you guys. I'm actually going to break it down into smaller chunks, so I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then we'll pick it up again later. But here are the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1. It says, And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all, Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And we pick it up in verse 1 with a list of names. Now, most of us get to a section like this and kind of skip over it. You might think, oh, that's terrible. You can't do that with the Bible. But I guarantee you there's not a single person here who would say that Numbers is their favorite book in the Bible. In fact, Numbers is most of the time where our yearly reading plan derails heavily. We try to pick it back up and just skip it to the New Testament because we just get too scared we don't know what to do, right? So we don't... We don't really love genealogies, if we're honest. We don't really know what to do with them. And yet, Moses starts with names. Now, I read that, and my mind goes to John 10. Do you remember what Jesus said? The good shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name and leads them out. The good shepherd knows his sheep. Calls them by name and leads them out. So I look at Exodus chapter 1 and I see the father heart of God. They're not just a number to him, he knows them by name. And Moses takes the time to actually list out their names. Now, Joseph and all of his brothers have died, which gives us an indication to the amount of time that's actually passed. But the overarching theme of this first section is the faithfulness of God and the power of his promises. The faithfulness of God and the power of his promises. Think back to Genesis and the promise that God gave to Abraham. Very well known. He said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, I just want you to put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a second. God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. As amazing as that is, I think you'd be excused for thinking, okay, but how? I mean, don't get me wrong, God, that is incredible, but how? We're old, and it hasn't exactly been easy getting to this point. It's an incredible promise, but it would have been hard to even imagine what that would look like, one family turning into a great nation, and yet here we are in Egypt with the fulfillment of that promise. The scholars say that we think there's probably two to three million Jews living in Egypt at that time nearly one-third of the population. So it's fair to say that God did exactly what he said he would. He held up his end of the bargain and he made them into a nation. And it's just a great reminder, church, there is power in the promises of God. Incredible power in the promises of God. The NIV says they were exceedingly fruitful. That's the blessing and favor of God. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. That's covenantal language, by the way. It's pointing us back to Genesis and the very first mandate that God gave to humanity. And he said, be fruitful, increase in numbers, fill the earth and subdue it. And that's what we see here in Exodus chapter one. The people of God fulfilling the mandate of God under the blessing of God. That's what we see. The people of God fulfilling the mandate of God under the blessing of God. But it helps us understand why they're here in the first place. And that's the strange thing about this story. Is that God actually took his people out of the promised land to come and join Joseph down in Egypt. Only to take them back a couple hundred years later. The question is why? Why? There's going to be a reason and a purpose for why God does that. It cannot be just this couple hundred year detour that makes no sense. It has no purpose. And this is where I think someone like Skip Heitzig is really helpful. He said Egypt is about two things. Number one, God is preparing his people for the promised land. Knowing they were going to have to conquer it when they got there. And if there were only 70 of them, that wasn't exactly going to work out in their favor. So he's preparing his people for the promised land, but he's also preparing the promised land for them. And that might sound strange to you, but Genesis 15, God reiterates his promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. I will lead your descendants into the promised land. But until then, he says, know this, know for certain that for 400 years, Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward, they will come out with great possessions. He's talking about Egypt, by the way. You, however, he says to Abraham, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the promised land, and here's why. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And God's saying, I will lead your descendants into the promised land. I will bring judgment on the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and all the other people of Canaan. But first, first I'm giving them a chance to Repent. And it's not like God was stingy about that. He gave them 400 years to repent and to turn from their ways. And only then, when they stubbornly refused and he could take it no more, does God use His people as an instrument of justice. Now, if we're honest, this is one of the more difficult things for us to deal with in Scripture. And I think it's important. For us to remember how patient God is. This isn't just him flippantly wiping out a group of people. He gave them 400 years to repent. It's A significant amount of time. And yet we've got to keep it in the back of our mind. We've got to understand the bigger story and what's actually happening around them. Because it helps us understand why they're here. God is preparing his people for the promised land. He's strengthening them and blessing them, but he's also preparing the promised land for them. That's why they're here. So let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will will join our enemies, fight against us and leave our country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses and store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The people of God have enjoyed this season of peace and prosperity. They've gone from a family of 70 to a nation of over two million people. It's incredible blessing and prosperity. It really is the favor of God. But then a new king comes to power, and everything changes. You see, Joseph served a king from the Hyksos dynasty. And the interesting thing about the Hyksos dynasty is that actually they were foreigners. They weren't native-born Egyptians. They were Canaanites had overthrown the previous regime and taken power for themselves. And that's important because it helps us understand why they were so inclusive of outsiders like Joseph. They were Canaanites. He was from Canaan. And so we understand what's going on here. And yet we get to Exodus chapter 1 and all of that is changed. The Hyksos dynasty is gone, a new dynasty has been established, and they don't look favorably upon outsiders. They view them with suspicion and fear, and you can kind of understand why. They just come out of 150 years of foreign rule. so it's not like their suspicions were completely unfounded. I genuinely think this new king was fearful of the prosperity and the strength of the people of God because it was just ever-increasing. He didn't have the context as to why they were even there. Verse 8 tells us that Joseph meant nothing to him. Nobody knew who Joseph was anymore. Nobody remembered uh, the famine or close they ca- how close they came to crumbling. Nobody cared. It was just, it was just a story, it was ancient history. And so was the agreement that Pharaoh had made with Joseph in the first place. They were there, and they had been for a while, but nobody could actually remember why. All they can see is this group of people multiplying, getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And so this new king looks at the people of God, and he sees a threat that needs to be dealt with. And that's exactly what he does. And that's not to understate his cruelty, because I think he was an incredibly cruel man. He forces them into servitude and essentially tries to work them to death, to blunt the prosperity of God by just working them into the ground. In Chuck Swindell's book, he gives us this little insight. He says, Archaeologists have greatly helped us to understand this portion of Scripture. And they have unearthed obelisks and monuments, excuse me, and columns etched with all manner of figures and hieroglyphs and one interesting discovery featured a mural depicting a large group of laborers working under two superior officers with heavy lashes and their task making bricks the two holding the whips were betrayed as crying out work without fainting there's good historical evidence to back up this portion of scripture and Pharaoh can see the blessing and the prosperity, so he tries to extinguish it by working them into the ground. And yet, we get to verse 12, and we see that actually the very opposite is happening. That the more they're oppressed, the more they multiply and spread. And it foreshadows one of the great themes of this book, the, ca- the cosmic battle between Pharaoh and Pharaoh and Yahweh. It's not Moses versus Pharaoh, or even Israel versus Pharaoh. The story of Exodus is all about Pharaoh and God. That's the battle that's taking place. This human king had placed himself in direct opposition to the plans and purposes of God. He's actually tried to undo the blessing, the favor, and the mandate of God. But this is our hope. And this means for us as well. It's the same today. As powerful as Pharaoh may have been, he didn't have the power or the authority to nullify the promises of God. He could make their lives incredibly difficult, and he did but he couldn't stand against the sovereignty of God or the promises of God. And so we see them continuing to flourish, continuing to multiply and spread and grow in strength despite his best efforts. A pharaoh has power, but, but he doesn't sit on the throne. That is our hope. It's relevant for Christians all around the world today. It's not something that's relegated to the pages of history. God still works in our world, still is sovereign. You know, an example of that, all you have to do is look at the underground church in China. I don't know how familiar you are with the history of the Chinese church. In the 1940s, they went through a cultural revolution. And up until that point, they'd actually had a level of religious freedom. It wasn't perfect, but it was much better than it is today. But then in 1949, we saw this massive crackdown on religious expression, hence the underground church that China is so well known for. Pastors were being hunted down and thrown in jail. It was an incredibly dangerous place to be a follower of Jesus. It still is, to be honest with you. But decades later, when the doors of China opened up again, we didn't see the church in China crumbling. We didn't see them on their knees. We actually saw revival. That The church had exploded. There were millions of Christians in China, which isn't exactly what the CCP was hoping to achieve, and yet here we are. So much so that the Chinese church is talking about sending missionaries back to the West. It gives you an idea of the level of health. As the pressure and the persecution ramped up, the church didn't crumble, it exploded. And it's not just China. I remember reading an article by the Gospel Coalition last year, and it talked about the unbelievable growth of our faith in Iran and Afghanistan. Now, from a humanistic point of view, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You wouldn't think that would be true, and we see it again and again and again. It's the power of God. It's a great reminder that our God is sovereign. Sovereign. He never lets us down, never goes back on his word, which means his promises are secure and his plans will come to fruition. And we can build our life on this stuff. Because we know he's faithful. Nothing to do with us. My faith, all to do with the faithfulness of God. This is how our passage finishes in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth and delivery still, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I don't know how true that was, but sure. <laughs> so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. Pharaoh doubles down, God blesses. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew that is born, you must throw into into the Nile, but every girl may live. So we get to the last part of this passage and we see Pharaoh essentially doubling down. It's amazing what people will do out of fear. Moses makes it pretty clear, they were afraid, they were dreading what they could see. Chuck Swindell puts it like this, he says, mounting suspicion towards a group of people is only a step away from prejudice, yet another step away from persecution and but a stone's throw from genocide. And that's what we see in verse 15. Pharaoh calls in these two wives, Shiprah and Puah, and instructs them to commit what is essentially genocide. And I want you to put yourselves in their shoes for a minute. These two women are called before the king, the most powerful man in all the land. And he had absolute power over them. That he could have taken their lives with the snap of his fingers. He gave them a royal decree, a command, and they refused. Verse 17 says, because they feared God. That's an amazing step of faith. I put to you, you don't make that stand if you're not convinced in your heart of hearts that Yahweh, not Pharaoh, sits on the throne. That's a stand built on a firm belief in the sovereignty of God and the power of His promises. And it's powerful. It allowed God to use them as His hands and feet. It allowed Him to work out His plans and purposes through them. Incredibly powerful. You know, Scripture is full of examples where God calls His people to submit themselves to authority. Then we get to Exodus and the book of Daniel, and we're reminded that sometimes we're actually called to make a stand. And there may come a moment where our obedience to Jesus and our submission to authority comes to a head. And in that moment, our response is Peter's response as he stands before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. He says, you do what you gotta do, but we must obey God, not man. We obey God. That's one of those things that's easy to say. It's not always easy to do, so I don't wanna downplay the bravery the step of faith that these two women made, it was powerful. And we know that God was pleased because he blessed them for it. That's not to say that God is encouraging us to lie. If we're honest, these were some pretty extreme circumstances. And as Augustine said, God rewarded their piety, not their deceit. But what I actually want you to see is the nature of God's reward. He blesses them with the very thing that Pharaoh was trying to eliminate. He gives them a family, children of their own. And it's this last reminder that Pharaoh may have power, but Yahweh sits on the throne. And his promises are steadfast, that they're everlasting, unwavering bastions of hope. For he who promised is faithful. You know, if I was to summarize this passage, I would say that our hope is unyielding because his promises are unshakable. Our hope is unyielding. It's firm because his his promises are unshakable. They're steadfast. R.C. Spruill once said, hope is called the anchor of the soul because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of God's promises. Hope latches on to the certainty, the surety of God's promises. And a surety that is based in His character and His nature because He is faithful. It's who He is. Paul says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So I wonder, do you know what it is that God has promised you? Do you stand on those promises? Do you claim them in the name of Jesus because you believe that actually they're yes and amen in Jesus? It's got nothing to do with you or your righteousness. This is all about the faithfulness of God. So here's how I want to finish. I want to invite the band to come back up lead us in worship. But I want you guys to close your eyes so that this is just between you and the Lord. I'm going to read out some of the promises that God has for you. These aren't just generic promises that are for someone. These are the promises that God has given you. I just want you to soak in them. There might be one that jumps out to you, fantastic, write it down, but I want us to be reminded of the incredible promises that God has given each and every one of us, because you can build your life on this stuff, and in the darkest moments, this stuff makes a difference, gives us hope. So here we go. I encourage you just to close your eyes and to meditate on the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. That's a promise. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. promise trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding in all your ways submit to him allow him to actually take control and he will make your path straight Jesus said do not worry saying what shall shall, shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after these things And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Do we believe that? It's a promise given to us in scripture. The words of Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, the words of Jesus, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find it. It's a promise. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we just want to acknowledge your goodness We declare as one people that you are faithful. That you stand apart from our world. You stand apart even from us and our complete lack of faithfulness. Unlike us, you are faithful. You're good. You're steadfast. Your love is unwavering. Your mercy is new every day. You're always at work. Your promises are secure. And so we stand on those promises this morning. As you worked out your plans and purposes in the lives of your people in Exodus chapter 1, God, we pray that you would be working out your plans and purposes here amongst us in our lives. We pray blessing and favor upon your people. We think about our brothers and sisters as some of the hardest places around the world. And we pray, Jesus, that you would bless them. That you would be with them. Despite what is going on around them, Father, they would see your goodness. We stand in your promises. they give us hope. And So we pray, Jesus, give us eyes that are fixed on you. And our hearts turn to you first because we know that you're with us. We know that you're good. We know that you have great plans for our lives and we know that you're faithful. There might be people here this morning, Jesus, who know that in their head but just struggle to see that actually take root in their heart. And I just pray, Jesus, you would actually reveal yourself to them. Show them your faithfulness. Show them your goodness they might actually be able to bend the knee, surrender who they are, surrender their lives to you, knowing you are for them and you are faithful. Now, This we pray for in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Our prayer is that what was said today inspires you and strengthens you in your faith. If you would like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, you can contact the team during office hours on the number you can find on our website at mounties.org.au. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to having your company again soon. God bless.